coming up on this episode of Inside the Epicenter. And I think it's an important question to ask, do Muslims have a view of the end times and should that worry us or not? I think this is an important conversation. Do Muslims have an eschatology? And do they actually believe that we're living in the end of days? And what impact would that have on us? Hi, welcome to Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, a podcast of the Joshua Fund, a ministry dedicated to blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. I'm Carl Muller, Executive Director of the Joshua Fund, and today I'm, I'm joined once again by our founder, Joel Rosenberg, from Jerusalem. Joel, welcome. Thank you. Great to be with you. And I, I find this topic fascinating, and I, and I want to front load just a one quick point. You know, you and I, we do not believe in Islamophobia and we do not practice it. No. I think that sometimes when people hear that you're going to begin to look at carefully what do uh, does another religion, and particularly Islam, what do they believe, that there's immediate uh, defensiveness. Oh, you're about to besmirch these people. No, look, you and I are evangelicals. Obviously, we have disagreements theologically with what Muslims believe, but we have mm-hmm. many deep, uh, friendships in the Muslim world. But it, this is interesting. And this, you know, we've been talking for the last few podcasts, right, about what do Americans believe about the end of days and whether we're getting there or there? And I think it's an important question to ask, do Muslims have a view of the end times and should that worry us or not? I think this is an important conversation. No doubt, because most people don't realize that there are so many differences within the Middle East between Shia and Sunni. There are different other sects of Islam, but there are branches of Islam that you know, obviously we're familiar with what we've called uh, over recent years radical Islam and radicals in Islam are different, though, than what we're describing as a whole different branch of Islam called those that follow apocalyptic Islam. So so maybe let's just talk about what is radical Islam? So when we even use a descriptor like radical or apocalyptic, we're using it to contrast with other types of Muslims. Right. Otherwise, you just say Muslim, <laughs> you know, and, right. and we're not saying that what we're saying. In fact, just to set the stage, I've done, you know, years of research studying hundreds of polls and diving deep into the data in multiple countries, in Muslim majority countries. And over many years looking at different data, what we find is the vast majority of Muslims are peaceful, mm-hmm. meaning they don't believe that you should use violence to accomplish your theological or political objectives, right? Now, their political and theological objectives might be different from yours and mine, Carl, but we are okay in a world that's pluralistic and says, I don't agree with you, think, and I don't, but let's have the conversation. Let's even have a, a roaring, rip-roaring debate. Just don't kill me, you know, or take me hostage or whatever, right? So what becomes clear when you look at the data, I mean, just mountains of data, is that approximately 90 to 93% of Muslims, no matter how you ask the question, what direction, in all these countries, they basically, it's pretty consistent. Mm-hmm. Nine out of 10 will tell you, no, I, I, I have these strong views, but I don't believe you should use violence to achieve the goals that I have or that Islam has. That's good. <laughs> that means the vast majority of, of Muslims are, you know, basically peaceful people. They're not people we should be fearful of. But the data is also clear that they are clear that it's between seven and 10% at any given time, of the Muslim world does believe in using violence to accomplish their political or theological objectives. That's Mm -hmm. a problem. 
right? Yeah. Because that's the group of people that we think of as terrorists. Now, again, to be clear, not all the seven to ten percent would actually do the violence, mm-hmm. right? That's a that's a subset, but that's the pool from which the terrorist states or terrorist organizations recruit from, right? Mm-hmm. So when you hear like President George W. Bush back in the day say Islam's a peaceful religion, many people were very critical of him, especially since he was saying it pretty much right after 9-11. Right. And you're like, what are you talking about? They just flew planes. He, but he was saying, yeah, a certain type of person did this, but you, that's not all of Islam. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I've, I've been in those debates with people, and I would just say, to be clear up front, because it's really important that we establish our construct here up front. It's true that you can honestly say that the vast, vast majority of the Muslim people are peaceful and not a threat. Sure. But the fact that seven to ten percent say I, I do believe that suicide bombing is okay or other types of terrorism or whatever, that's a problem because in a yeah. world of one point eight billion Muslims, ten yeah. percent is one hundred and eighty million people. Wow, that's more than half the population right. of the United States. If right. it were his own country, let's say the Islamic Republic of Radical Stan. <laughs> Right. If they everybody joined one country, that'd be the ninth largest country by population on the planet. Wow. So the fact that the vast majority are peaceful is important. It's true, but it's not it, it, it doesn't, doesn't negate the idea that yeah. there is this radical Islamism. Now, to be yeah. clear, I use the term radical Islamism okay. because Islamism is the political is taking Islam theologically and making it a political objective. Got it. Like communism Mm -hmm. or socialism Mm -hmm. or capitalism. This is Islamism. It's the idea that we take the theology and then go make a political objective of it. So the short version is, yeah, there are, you know, 180 million roughly radical Islamists in Mm. the world who believe you can use violence to get what you want. Right. Now there's a subset of them. Right. Okay. Not every radical Islamist, Carl, is an apocalyptic Islamist. Right. But every apocalyptic Islamist is a radical. Is a radical. Okay. okay. Oh, just to, all right. Now, what's the difference between mm-hmm. radical Islamism and apocalyptic Islamism? Well, radical Islamism is the idea that you use violence to achieve your objective. So right. let's say your objective is to remove all the Jews out of what you call Palestine. Mm-hmm. So suicide bombings, rockets, invasion, knifing, shootings, whatever type of violence that you want to employ All means that necessary. radical Islamism. We, mm. we want to achieve something. We want to so scare and exhaust the Jews that they leave. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, you know, we saw that in India, right? The Indians used, many people used uh, nonviolent, but sometimes violent to try to drive the British out. The, the, the Jews did it here in, in mandated Palestine. We wanted the British to leave. Okay. I'm not advocating it. I'm just saying that historically was true. We've seen it. Right. Right. Or Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda. Uh, and Osama bin Laden, they, as bad as they were, it's horribly evil, but not apocalyptic. Mm. They wanted to use violence to get America to withdraw out of the Muslim Middle East. Sure. It didn't work, but that's what their objective was, right? right. Um, in fact, they pulled America into the Middle East more than we'd ever been. But Right. Now, what, what's apocalyptic Islam? That's saying, no, we're not just using violence to achieve an end. Mm. We want to use genocide to bring about the end of the world. Wow. As we've known, right? Right. So uh, that's what the Iranian regime is. Interesting. If you look at the Ayatollah Ali Hamanayi, he comes from a world where he's saying, I want to build nuclear weapons so that I can eliminate the Jewish people in Israel and I can 
neutralize or decimate or destroy Christendom, which he sees as America, the epicenter of Christendom. And once we get rid of Israel, the little Satan in his view, Mm. and the United States, the great Satan in his view, then we have created the conditions of chaos and carnage and trauma Mm. into which the Messiah or the ultimate savior in their view arrives. Mm. Jesus comes as the deputy, but he's not the king of the world. The 12th imam is, or the mahdi, two different terms, same person. And he will establish a global reign and Islam will reign over the entire planet in the end of days. So, but to get there, you need to commit genocide to bring about the end of the end. And so that's radical, but it's worse than radical because it's not violence, it's genocide. That's the short version. Well, I want to get back to that whole description of those elements of the views of apocalyptic Islam in a moment. But to kind of summarize the landscape, if you will, there's a continuum of of Islam and Islamists. There's Islamists that are political agenda Muslims who are driven to create some form of political outcomes through radical Islam. So you have 1.8 billion Muslims. You have 100 and 80 million or so, we were saying radical Islamists who were using Islam to achieve certain political ends, including violence and and, uh, other things. And then there's a subset, um, if you will, on that spectrum, sort of at the extreme end of apocalyptic Islamism. And apocalyptic Islamism has to do with bringing about the conditions for the end of the world in their viewpoint. Do I have that right? Is that the way that... that, You have that right. And And there's three quick, small, short points that need to go with that. Every Muslim who's faithful to their religion has an eschatology. Okay. In other words, they have an end times theology. And we can talk about that in a moment because it's actually very interesting. Jews have an eschatology if they're religious. And obviously Christians have one. We we sometimes disagree about it. And so do Jews. And so do Muslims. But every faithful religious Muslim has an eschatology. Mm. The eschatology itself is not a problem. I mean, it can be wrong, mm-hmm. but it's not dangerous mm-hmm. unless it leads you to violence, right? So that's important. Every Muslim has an eschatology if they're religiously faithful, but that doesn't mean they're an apocalyptic genocidal person. So again, mm-hmm. we want to make that distinction. That's point one. Point two would be those who have this end times theology, it's not really not that many, but it's going to lead them to violence, but it might lead them to violence now. Like start trying to do genocide now, or they might wait. They might prepare for genocide. Mm. So that brings me to point three. In recent years, for the first time in human history that I can think of, there were two governments on the planet whose leader was driven by apocalyptic Islamism. Mm. The first was Iran. Okay. Mm -hmm. And to be clear, the Ayatollah Khomeini who led the Islamic revolution in Iran in 1979, he was a radical, but not an apocalyptic. Interesting. He wanted to use violence to achieve what he wanted, but he wasn't trying to bring about the end of days. And he Mm. thought, the Ayatollah Khomeini thought, that the people who wanted to use violence to bring about the end of days, they were lunatics. And he banned that religious movement inside Iran. Interesting. His disciple, the current supreme leader of Iran, the Ayatollah Ali, Hamanai, the names are so close that it's wow. challenging. It's hard, it's hard to distinguish. The disciple, yeah. Hamanai, the current supreme leader of Iran, he was a closet apocalyptic Islamist. Either he didn't believe that when he was serving with 
the previous Ayatollah Khomeini, or he was just in the closet. Mm. But he's come out of the closet, or he converted to this apocalyptic view. So that's important. That's one government. Yeah. So how do you negotiate with a group that, if they really believe that they need to get nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles and all these other things in order to bring about the end of days and in order to set into motion genocide, would a nuclear deal and some economic sanctions really will that persuade them to abandon their deepest held religious views? Wow. So that's Iran. Okay. Yeah. But there was one more. It doesn't exist now. ISIS. The Islamic hmm. State, when it established its caliphate, was led uh, by a series of leaders. But the main one was actually a man with a doctorate in Islamic eschatology, theology, and jurisprudence, uh, Islamic hmm. law. His name was Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Mm-hmm. The short version is he's a Sunni. He was a Sunni. He's dead but now. But ISIS are Sunnis. Iranians are Shias. So theologically, they disagree. But the leaders – were both apocalyptic, but they had a different strategy. ISIS believed we don't need to wait to build nuclear weapons or chemical weapons or anything like that. We have a sword. We have an AK-47. Let's just start chopping people's heads off and gunning them down right mm-hmm. now. Let's commit genocide now, build the caliphate now, and then the end will come. Now, Khamenei in Iran is taking a different approach. Yeah, yeah, use violence and terrorism, but but we're building for the day of thermonuclear genocide someday. Instantaneous, yeah. We don't get involved in genocide now. Mm-hmm. And there's two examples. I mean, that's pretty bad. Fortunately, ISIS has been mostly eliminated, but Iran exists. So yep. that's a little bit of context. And, you know, obviously we can see a difference in approach as well. The confrontational approach of ISIS resulting in its demise because the world and uh, led by the United States, really went went after it and, uh, and and eliminated it, and we saw that happen 2017 or so during those years. Um, right, right. And in a similar sense to the if, if you think of it as a mistake. I mean, thank God they 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 were eliminated, and the, the Trump administration and, and the U.S. and the, and the right. Arab partners and the Kurds all worked together to eliminate this this threat. But in a sense, they made a huge strategic error. They started fighting before they were ready to deal with the rest of the world because they didn't think the world would do anything. Right. That's just like Hitler. Hitler was genocidal, but Hitler started before we built nuclear weapons. If he'd waited a couple of more years, he would have had nuclear weapons. He could have done what we did in Japan. Right. He could have done to England and France and the United States. Thank God he didn't. But so that's where the Iranians are thinking. You know, the Iranians are the ones who invented chess. And so they are thinking many moves, many moves down, down, down the down road. There. And al-Baghdadi was, was impatient and he just decided to get started with killing slaughter. Well, this is, this is so fascinating. I know it's been so helpful to get this analysis and this, this kind of analysis escapes a lot of people's understanding. You know, when we group people together and fail to make these distinctions, we can, we can often get way off track. We can either hate Muslims unnecessarily who are not any way part of this. We should love all people and love Muslims, especially those that are seeking earnestly uh, God in, in, in a way that they know. We need to pray for them. We need to pray that they come to know Jesus. But at the same time, if we don't make these distinctions, we can also ignore and fail to recognize the violence associated with radical and even apocalyptic Islam. I mean, these are this is really helpful. Uh, we need to take a quick break here in this podcast, but uh, when we come back, we want to talk about the Christian response to this and what we should be thinking about and doing in relationship to these kinds of understandings. 
Our verse of the day today is found in Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Our prayer requests today are to pray for all Muslims worldwide that they would come to know their true Savior, Jesus Christ. To pray for all Jews worldwide, for them to understand and recognize that in Jesus their Messiah has come and that they have a way to recognize him. And a third, to pray for all believing Christians around the world, that they would also be faithful to the message of Jesus to love both Jews and Muslims, and in fact, all people, to bring them to a saving knowledge of who Jesus is. Joel, we're back, and you know, it was so helpful in the last uh, part of our podcast to to kind of analyze this difference between radical Islamism and apocalyptic Islamism, um, you know, over and against the whole religion of Islam. But as Christians, we have a responsibility to love and to care for all people and to, to bring the good news to all these people. When we look at this sort of world in which uh, radical Islam and apocalyptic Islamism has driven uh, so many of these uh, violent responses around the world, what's the Christian response to that? How should we be praying and acting in these days? Well, Carl, I think the simplest way to put it is to just quote Jesus. It's always a good <laughs> Uh, That's a good thing. Uh, Exactly. (laughs) Love your neighbor, love your enemy. So maybe uh, you're thinking of the Muslim world as, okay, they're mostly peaceful. That's good. So they're our neighbors. And how can we love them? And obviously we love them unconditionally, right? If Even if they don't receive Jesus, if they don't want to listen to the gospel, uh, we still love them and we want peace for them. We want peace for Israel. We want peace for them. Uh, We want Iran to have a good, peaceful regime and not have, you know, apocalyptic lunatics, uh, genocidal maniacs running the show and, and imprisoning their people. And so so we want good for Muslims, even if they don't receive Jesus, even if they won't listen to Jesus. That's loving our neighbor. Now, if they're an enemy of the gospel, if they're actively you know, hating us, we also need to love them. And that requires more patience. But let's remember that the New Testament has a radical, violent extremist at the core of the story. <laughs> so Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, would have been a radical Islamist if he'd been a Muslim. Okay, now Islam was not around yet for another 1,400 years. But my point is, you can use violence to achieve your political and religious objectives and not be a Muslim, right? Okay, so Saul was a murderous, persecuting, horrible person driven by extreme his extreme understanding of religious and political Judaism. And yet he got saved and became the greatest apostle, arguably, uh, you know, in the entire New Testament, certainly reached more people that we're aware of, in part by just writing nearly half the New Testament, right? And so when you think of, wow, that's an amazing example of someone who's driven by religion and politics and hatred and violence and thinking he's doing it for God. (laughs) And then the Lord totally changed him. And that's why we need to not give up on, but in fact, pray for and love those who are radicals and even those who are apocalyptic because they are so fervent Mm -hmm. in their hatred of us because they're so sure that that's what God wants them for them um, that we need to ask the Lord to open their eyes and recalibrate their understanding of who God is 
and what he asks of us. And I've met, I've interviewed for my books and and uh, various projects that I've done, documentary films. I've interviewed people who were radical Islamist terrorists until they were radically saved by Jesus Christ, and they started to fall in love with the New Testament and, and their whole Bible, and and God transformed them. Let mm-hmm. us never think that just because someone is disagrees with us that they can't change or that right. they're horrible and we would never want to be in the same room or town or continent right. with them that God can't change them. Right. I will remember uh, back in prior ministry that I worked with, uh, with Brother Andrew, world-renowned uh, smuggler of Bibles uh, into the communist days. But when we were together uh, many times, he would ask me, challenge me, have you prayed for bin Laden today? And if I remember those days, I was also struck by this idea that, wow, if Paul and other radicals can make that conversion, we should be praying for people who are at the radical fringe of apocalyptic Islamism, including a bin Laden. So that's really fascinating, Joel, and and something that we can, all of us can do. We can all step into this this world of praying for those that are persecuting and that are fomenting this kind of violence. What are some of the other ways that God is using the church to reach out to radical Islamists or apocalyptic Islamists even? Well, the church tends to have two different roles if people are really, you know, listening to the Lord, walking in the spirit, intent on fulfilling the Great Commission, which means making disciples of all nations, even if they're a radicalized nation or an apocalyptic nation or whatever. How do we fulfill the Great Commission? How do we make sure there are disciples in every nation? Everyone's at least have a chance to hear. Right. We're not talking about coercing people. We're not talking about forcing people or deceiving people. We're talking about giving them a chance to at least hear the good news that they don't have to go the way they're going. And in fact, they're going in the wrong direction. That it's loving to tell them that you're going in the wrong direction. You're heading towards judgment. You're heading towards hell. But you can change. That's a loving thing to do. They don't. Might, they might not listen, but it, we'd be unloving if we didn't at least give people a chance. Now, so for those Christians in the region or outside the region who are walking in the spirit and, and, and focus on the Great Commission and, and they want to please Jesus, there's basically two different roles in the big picture. The one role is to run the air war and the other role is to run the ground war. What okay. do I mean? Okay. The air war is to use satellite television, radio, uh, the internet, podcasting. You know, you're basically broadcasting or narrowcasting, you know, depending on the, the medium, to get the gospel message and Bible teaching to every person in the Muslim world, regardless of whether they want to hear it, but at least they have an access. They can, you know, turn on satellite television and, 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 oh, this is somebody telling me about Jesus and a way of salvation and teaching me through the scriptures. I never knew this. There's not a church on my corner. And even if there was, if I went in there, I'd be murdered by radicals. So how would I hear, right? Paul, who had this dramatic experience going from a radical extremist, violent extremist, to the greatest apostle in the New Testament, he says, how are they going to believe if they haven't even heard? Hmm. How are they going to hear unless somebody tells them? And how can they tell them unless they're sent? But if you send somebody into a violent, dangerous place, they may never come back. So that's where the air war comes in. And most of these Christians are Arab or, or Iranian or other, you know, they know the language, they know, they know the, culture. the culture, that's them, but they live outside of the Middle East or North Africa. Why? Because it's safer to right. broadcast from the United States or from Africa or from Europe or or from Asia, they're engaged in the air war, giving people a chance to hear. The flip side is the ground war. These are the believers on the ground in these countries. Hmm. It's very difficult for them to, you know, they can't rent a stadium and say, 
you know, hey, we're going to hold a Billy Graham crusade or whatever. First of all, you can't <laughs> use the word crusade. So that's yeah. one thing. Yeah. That would be a bad name. Give invite the, the local evangelist to come right. because he, they'd all be murdered. Right. So what do you do? So it, it, it's a little more difficult. You're, you're talking about small congregations and small meetings, sometimes in the middle of the night, sometimes early in the morning. And, you know, the Bible colleges are smaller. They're not big seminaries. They're not American style. They're not they're more quiet. They're more discreet. You might not mm-hmm. see a sign at the front door that tells you what's going on in that room. And in, and in a lot of ways, the Joshua Fund wants to support both. You know, the air war is a, a big ticket amount. We do some. Uh, support for that type of gospel broadcasting and and certainly on the internet. But mm-hmm. mostly we're trying to come alongside and encourage and assist people on the ground who are believers who have to be very careful, wise, and discreet in how they operate in a Muslim environment, lest they be arrested, tortured, and murdered. Yeah. One more point on that, it goes back to the the verse of the day, right? Matthew 24, 14 is such a great verse. This gospel, this good news of the kingdom of of Christ shall be preached. It will be preached uh, Mm -hmm. in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, not just easy countries, not just democracies, but dangerous countries, evil countries, wicked countries or countries with wicked regimes. This gospel, the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end shall come. These are the words of Jesus. He's saying, I want to make sure that before I bring the judgments of the book of Revelation and I come back to rule the world, I want everyone to at least have heard Mm -hmm. the message and have a chance to change. Yes. That's the gospel message. And that's the message of Matthew 24, 14. But that's 180 degrees opposite of the apocalyptic message, right? The apocalyptic Islamist message is rather than giving everyone a chance to be saved, let's commit genocide against all Jews, all Christians, mm-hmm. and create the conditions of horror, yeah. and then the end shall come. That's and that's why I say that having an eschatology is not wrong in and of itself. Genocidal eschatology is wrong. Yeah. And that's why the eschatology that the Lord Jesus Christ lays out in Matthew 24, and Luke 21, and Mark 13, and other places, is a photographic negative hmm of the teachings of apocalyptic Islamists. In other words, it looks and sounds the same at first. Oh, the Messiah is coming. Both sides believe that. Uh, The end of days has come, okay? The end of the end is imminent. Judgment day is coming. Mm -hmm. People who are judged will be sent into the fires of hell Mm -hmm. forever. No way of escape. Those who are sent the other direction, who have done the right thing, will go to heaven forever, paradise forever and ever. In a lot of ways, those sound like, yeah, what's the difference? Well, the difference is, uh, aside from how to get to heaven, that's fairly fundamental, these two different views. That would be big. But right is that that Jesus is saying, even if you have to be persecuted and die to tell someone who hates you how to get to heaven, I want you to do that. Whereas the other side is saying, I want you to kill everybody that hates you, and then you'll get to heaven. And you couldn't have more contrast than that. Yeah, you couldn't uh, analyze this better, Joel. The distinctions... The contrasts are profound, and thank you for kind of highlighting this for us. I mean, everything from uh, general Islam to the the radical Islamism and the apocalyptic Islamism, and contrast that with the Great Commission, the the Great Commission to love and to share the good news with the whole world that Christians believe. Uh, what a great analysis! Thank you, Joel. Appreciate that so much on this podcast. 
My pleasure. One last uh, point I'd love to make. I know we got to wrap, but there are some interesting numbers. We won't be able to unpack all of them, but we could you know, put them in the show notes. There was a Pew Research study a number of years ago. It's actually a decade ago, just to be clear, but I'd love to see it updated. I haven't seen them update this. But, just, but a decade ago, they actually asked people in the Muslim world, do you believe that the coming of the Mahdi, this person who's perceived as the ruler of the whole world, the savior of the world, do you believe his coming is imminent? Because mm-hmm. all Muslims who are religious believe that he's coming. Mm-hmm. They think that Jesus is coming as the deputy, not as the leader. Yeah. And, and so just as an example, it, the Pew Research Foundation report found that in Egypt, 40% of Muslims believe that the return of the Mahdi is imminent. Wow. In Jordan, it was 41%. Among Palestinians, the number was 46%. Mm. In Iraq, in the midst of all the horrors of the war, 72% of Muslims believed all the wars were the, were very part of the Islamic prophecies about wars and rumors of wars and that the Mahdi was coming imminently. That's pretty amazing. And it doesn't mean that all of those people wanted to commit genocide, but they do believe in their Islamic eschatology. One more related point, this idea that they Muslims believe that Jesus is coming back again. Okay? Not all Americans believe that, right? right? Not all you know Russians believe that or Chinese but all Muslims believe Jesus is actually coming back physically to the planet and he'll be the deputy of the Mahdi. In Jordan, 29% of Muslims believe that Jesus is coming back to earth. It's not taught much. It's in the Quran, but it's not really taught every day. In Egypt, 39% of Muslims believe Jesus is coming back. Among Palestinians, 46% of Palestinians believe Jesus is coming back. And in Iraq, an eye-popping 64% of Muslims said they believe that Jesus is coming Jesus. back to earth. Now, wow. I agree with them um, for different reasons. I base my <laughs> not on the Quran, but on the Bible. But it's interesting because there's a point of agreement. Muslims believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The Quran mm-hmm. says so. They believe he was born of a virgin, the Virgin Mary. The Quran says so. They mm-hmm. believe he did miracles, that he was a wise teacher. And they believe he's coming back. Mm-hmm. They don't believe he's God. And they don't believe he died on a cross or rose again. So those are significant differences. But those are points of commonality that at least allow for an interesting discussion. You believe Jesus is coming back. So do I. But let's talk about why we believe that and what are the implications of that. Anyway, not a sermon, just a thought. No, that's great. (laughs) I think one day we should have that sort of means and methods of contact for uh, bringing the gospel uh, into conversations with Muslims. Uh, That would be a fascinating conversation as well, my brother. Uh, Joel, as always, this has been just so great. And and I want to thank all of our listeners uh, for listening to this podcast. I, I hope it's been helpful to you. I mean, Joel and I have addressed a number of different topics, and we would love to know what other topics you'd like to hear. We've had over two and a half million listens to our podcast, but we're always looking for ways to do this better and to be more responsive to you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Joshua Fund, visit our website at joshuafund.com. And there you can learn about what we're doing in the greater Middle East to, to bless Israel and her neighbors. And in the context we've talked about tonight, her enemies, in the name of Jesus and how you can participate in the work that we're doing in this critical region. And as always, you can check out our show notes for anything you heard on the podcast that you'd like more information on. For Joel Rosenberg, I'm Carl Muller. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Epicenter.
I'm Billy Yancey, entrepreneur, fitness cowboy, father, retired Navy cornerback, and now podcast host. Listen to my new show, Billy and the Goat, on Life Audio. Happy listening.